God, we thank you for the kindness that you show us every morning. Uh, there's a, a new batch of grace, a new batch of mercy that we get to enjoy, that we get to access. Holy Spirit, I pray that we never go a morning without reaching for that grace, without reaching for that mercy, without accessing it. And God, on a day like today where we celebrate freedom, where we think about freedom, God, I pray that today, above all days, we would not only think about it, not only contemplate it, not only reflect on it, but that we would actually experience it in all the ways, in all the dimensions that we can. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, illuminate us, not with something we can talk about later, but that we would be aware, that we would grow in our awareness of your company with us. And that in that company, God, we would be radically transformed that we would be changed, that the way we interact, the way we engage with one another, the way we engage with strangers, God, that we would somehow, um, through your power, find ways to make friends out of strangers, that we would make wholeness out of broken spaces. Holy Spirit, I pray that as uh, we continue to worship now in word, uh, I pray that you would help me to be good, to get out of the way that your people would see Jesus, that they would see every turn of the page, every word that we read as opportunities to see your face and to experience your company. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Morning. How you guys doing? Cool. Uh, you know, for a second there, Beth, I thought you were going to make the announcement and leave right after. I wasn't sure if that was what's going to happen, but I said, all right, she's, she's ready for sabbatical. I'm with it. I'm all the way with it. Um, well, I'm excited to be here with you all today. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I was away for a week with my daughter who was at the AAU National Volleyball Tournament in Orlando. Um, yeah, she did fantastic, actually. Um, I was very proud of her. Her team did not win a single game, but she did fantastic. <laughs> you know, this is the 10 and under. At this point, you're just, like, really happy that they're, like, volleying back and forth. Um, but it was great. But, you know, uh, I was just thinking uh, about today's uh, sermon, uh, the significance of today, uh, and really just contemplating and reflecting on this idea of freedom uh, and how complex it feels. Uh, behind me, you'll see a picture of Francois Toussaint. Uh, in 1793, he successfully led a slave revolt against the French who at that moment occupied Haiti. And this was the first successful slave revolt in all of history. And for many years after that, Toussaint uh, was able to kind of 
rebuild the cultural and the economic life of the people living in Haiti. But between the U.S. and France, who, as I mentioned before, occupied their land for over 100 years, they completely isolated this nation, this people. Um, and through a series of embargo and taxation, Haiti was never able to recover. So in a sense, after Toussaint led this revolt for a few years, they kind of felt with no resources or allies. So it wasn't much freedom in their experience. On July 5th, 1852, Frederick Douglass gave a speech at an event commemorating the signing of the Declaration of Independence held in Rochester, New York. And he said this. He said, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. You know, with July 4th uh, around the corner and Juneteenth being celebrated today, uh, part of the responsibility that I think we have as truth seekers and truth tellers is to confront the complicated nature and history of freedom. I loved that prayer that uh, Pastor Jenny led us through earlier because it shows tension and complexity which I think are two words that aptly describe what freedom is. And I often think that what most Americans often mean when they use the word freedom is really complex and oftentimes unclear. And when it comes to people of color, immigrants, and especially African Americans in this country, complex and unclear typically means dangerous. My buddy, uh, Pastor Rich Villodas, he animates this idea really well when he says this. He says, when U.S. slavery ended, Jim Crow took the baton. When Jim Crow ran his leg, redlining had its day. When redlining grew weary, mass incarceration sprinted forward. You see, the idea of free-ish means that two things can be true without contradiction. Our refusal to see this entrenches, entrenches us in mythology. You know, just to kind of set some expectations, I'm not a history buff, so if there are any here, this is not a history lecture. And it won't be a history even on Juneteenth. But this is a sermon about the anguish of a man and the role and responsibility of his community in relation to that anguish and the freedom that Jesus offers this man and expects us to make room for. So let's read the passage. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. I'll be reading from the CSB. You guys will be reading from the NSRV. <laughs> but it's all good. We're reading the text. Uh, Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 26 through 39. When they, sailed the region, uh, when they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, 
which was opposite, uh, which was opposite of Galilee. When he got out, excuse me, when he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. <clears throat> what is your name, Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because... Many demons entered him, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who tended, uh, who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it to the town and the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man, <clears throat> the demons uh, had departed, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all of the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he turned. He returned. The man from, the, uh, from uh, whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. But Jesus sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God, that God has done for you. And off he went, that's funny, and off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. So again, as I said, uh, this is not a story uh, necessarily about Juneteenth, but it is a story that draws from the same kind of well. A story about anguish, a story about responsibility, and a story about freedom. And a few things that I think we need to take notice when we read this story. The first one is this. There is much anguish in negligence. There is much anguish in negligence. Jesus pulls up to this town. What's interesting is that if you read the entire uh, uh, chapter uh, of Luke 8, you, you realize that there's a theme happening, right? Jesus had just kind of rebuked the winds and the waves, uh, the thing that had kind of enslaved the disciples um, or captured them or seized them with fear. Uh, and he sets them free, in a sense, by rebuking the winds and the waves. Now we're reading the story of this demon-possessed man. And then later after this story is the story uh, of two young girls, or a woman and a young girl, a 12-year-old woman, Jairus' daughter, who uh, passed, and the woman who had been seized by hemorrhaging for 12 years. Uh, so the theme is the same of Jesus kind of setting people free from things that ha they had been wrestling with for a long time. But he pulls up into this town in Galilee, which is historically a Gentile city. And just to explain what that is, Gentiles are ethnically mixed Jews. Ethnically mixed Jews. Uh, and they were typically not 
accepted or well-respected by either Jewish community, those who were of purebred Jewish descendancy, uh, or the Romans. And so here they are now living in this town, and a man pulls up to Jesus, running to him and begging him not to do anything that he doesn't want him to do. And here's a few things that we know about this man. First, the man is possessed by a demon. Second thing we know is that this demon is multi-personality, has many demons in him. And then thirdly, we realize that this demon is tormenting the man mentally, physically, and socially. The man is spending most of his day crying out in anguish. He's cutting himself with stones. If you read Mark chapter 5, it gives you a bit more details to the story. I know we didn't read that part. Uh, but if you hear from Mark, you realize he kind of gives a little bit more breath to the story. But not only is he spending most of his days crying out in anguish, but he's cutting himself with stones. And he's isolated from community. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you guys have ever spent time away unintentionally away from people, uh, but, but that kind of isolation doesn't feel good. It's, it's a kind of anguish. Now, the story doesn't tell us why this particular man is living under these circumstances, but I do think the story tells us why he remains under those circumstances. And church, I really do think that that is far more important than why he is under those circumstances. After Jesus heals this man in dramatic fashion, more on that later, uh, verse 37 tells us that all the people of the region asked Jesus to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. Now, what in the world could have possibly scared them so much? What in the world, what in this story stirred up so much fear in this community? I've mentioned this here before. I think it was the first time that I was here with you guys. I mentioned to you guys a friend of mine. His name is Domingo. Uh, Domingo, uh, at the time, was unemployed and homeless. He stayed with us one night, one winter night, in fact. It was a very cold, bitter winter night, and Domingo, who usually has a bed secured at a local shelter, for whatever reason, didn't have that happening uh, this time. And I happened to be uh, walking back from the grocery store and saw him in the little park bench that he always stayed in or always sat in. And um, uh, I said, hey, it's, you know, past the time of when you should be at the shelter. It's also really cold. Uh, what are you doing? He said, man, I didn't get a bed. So I invited him over without speaking to my wife, which was very dangerous on my part. Um, but I figured she'd be okay with it considering the circumstances. And so he stayed with us that night. And to be honest with you, it was unexpected and a little uncomfortable. Uh, uh, Domingo smelled pretty badly. We lived in a 600-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment, and we were already a family of four. Expected to my wife and even more unexpected to my kids because uh, in, in their bedroom. We got up the next morning, uh, which was Sunday church, <laughs> and yeah, breakfast for Domingo. Domingo uh, went on. We disrupting our way of life before that night. It disrupted the way that we did life and the way that we did our nights and the way that we did our Saturday nights before then. And this man in the passage was an intimidating figure. He was wild, erratic, self-harming, perhaps dangerous to others. 
He was a man who couldn't control his darkness. He was not a stranger to the people of the town. He had a home in the town we later read about. And, you know, to be honest, every time I read the description of this man, I'm tempted to read it the way that I did many years ago. I'm tempted to read it uh, in a way that sees him as the villain, as the bad guy. That might just be me, but that's the way I read it many years ago. But I often, in, in more recent years, when I think about this guy, I think about the countless people that lived in our low-income community back in New York, wrestling through food insecurity, homelessness, uh, inequality, work, inequality in work opportunities. And I think about their breakdown, their mental and emotional breakdown as a result of whatever they had been going through that oftentimes is the result of different inequality and unjust systems. And their breakdown almost feels like a kind of truth-telling of what's happening at large. And this is how I see this man in this story. But for whatever reason, the town thought that it was better to keep him bound and relegated to the margins. They thought that to isolate the man was to free themselves from evil and darkness. But what happens when Jesus frees this man tells us quite another story. By by giving this man freedom, Jesus effectively disrupts the economy of this town by drowning their bacon and pork sausages. Or the 2,000 pigs that brought their livelihood. This man's freedom came at the town's cost. You see, we may not know why this man lived under those circumstances, but his community's negligence is why he remained under them. In her essay, Incremental Evil, Dr. Melinda Elizabeth Berry says it this way. She says, in most communities, we tend to both underestimate and ignore the power of group dynamics. Confronting problematic or even offensive behavior can be, destruct, can be destructive. So we end up doing what we need to do to live and let live without paying attention to how evil takes hold in small moments of indifference. You see, this wouldn't be the only time that a person's freedom would, would be costly to an entire community. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is mauled by a crowd after he freed a woman who was living as a sex slave. Acts chapter 16 verse 19 says this, when her owners, after Paul had freed her from the spirit that had possessed her, the demon that had possessed her, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. I'm not surprised that the South, the American South, held on so tightly to their slaves. I'm also not surprised that it took two years for slaves in Texas to find out that they were free. The townspeople and the demon believed the same things about this man. Both of them believed that he wasn't worthy of being dignified, but instead isolated, discarded, and ultimately destroyed. Here's the irony. 
The man wasn't the only one under the influence of evil. It may say in the text that he was the one demon-possessed, but he wasn't the only one influenced by evil. In verse 37, as we've already read, we see that all the people of the Gerasene region asked Jesus, after he had done this great thing for this man, asked Jesus to leave. You got to get out of town, bro. (laughs) Because they were gripped by fear. You see, just like the demon that had possessed the man, the people knew what Jesus was capable of and as a result asked him to leave town. To leave them alone. You see, the people did not want to stick around to find out how else Jesus would disrupt their way of life. The fear of not knowing what else Jesus would do was too much to bear for a people who who preferred their life and their way of living. Jesus, what you've done for this man is far too disruptive. We don't even want to think about how else you can disrupt the way that we're living now. Church, any ideology that is built on the practice of dehumanizing and disparaging any group of persons is built on evil. And Jesus is putting that on full display here in this story. If a society's success is intrinsically dependent on the exploitation, negligence, and devaluing of any groups of people in that society, it has dangerously moved away from the ethic of divine love. And the question that remains for all of us to wrestle through is how do we exploit? And how are we being negligent? Two questions that I think if we took seriously to reflect and ponder on and then take action on could radically change the way that we live day to day. Could radically transform every single choice that we make. How do we exploit? And how are we negligent? And I often have to challenge myself not to make the mistake to um, make those two words extremes or only think about them in their extremes. But to see the subtle ways that we can exploit someone, their story. To see the subtle ways that we can be negligent. That Juneteenth, (laughs) only in its second year, of being a nationally recognized holiday could easily become a way that we are negligent because we are much quicker to offer symbols than we are sacrifices. But how could even on this day we reflect on these two questions? How are we exploiting? How are we being negligent? Secondly, freedom means nothing without vision or imagination. Freedom means nothing without vision or imagination. You know, in verse 39, Jesus sends this man home after, after the man asked him uh, to stay with him. And, you know, this is pretty... Uh, This happens often to Jesus when he does something really great. People just want to rock with him. They just want to stay with him. 
Like, we want to stay around this greatness. Uh, but Jesus often has the tendency to send them off. Sometimes he, sa- sometimes he sends them off. He says, hey, don't say nothing. That works against him because they always say something. Uh, and other times he'll send them, on, uh, send them off and he does what he did, did here. And he says, hey, go tell everybody. But in verse 39, we see, we see here that despite the fact that this man asked to stay with him, begged him, right, to stay with him, the only other time they use the word beg here, uh, begged him to stay with him, Jesus' response here is far more important than I think I in the past have imagined it to me. It wasn't just another, this is what Jesus does, now go tell the world kind of response. Jesus was driving home a compassionate point here. With his response, Jesus was saying something about the nature and the purpose of freedom. He says, go home and tell all that God has done for you. Now, church, imagine, imagine this one, just imagine this man who was once unhinged, terrifying, feared by everyone is now walking through the streets of his town. Imagine this man walking back into his home, known by his neighbors and family as a terrifying figure, crying out at night like a wild animal with a series of gashes on his body from the torment that the demon had him under. This man can now walk through those same streets and be seen by those same people in a new way. He can be seen and known again anew. He's now clothed and in his right mind. A reality that was not only an emotional and mental relief to him, I imagine, but to those who once knew him intimately. To those who loved him and still believed that maybe something could change. There's something special about Jesus sending him back home to his family to be known in a new light. Humanized. Dignified. Unburdened. Free. And not as a man. You know, it's interesting to me. uh, Most of the towns in Galilee were under Roman occupation or colonized by the Roman. This man was, in a sense, occupied by many demons. And here he is now walking in the same streets free. Perhaps once the mascot of this broken and occupied community who then found a way to hide all of their dark secrets into this man and then relegated him to the margin. Now he's able to walk in his community as an example of how free they can be. The problem often with our definitions of freedom is that they lack vision. You see, for Jesus, freedom is something that can be experienced. That's why he sends him back home, to be known anew, dignified, humanized. Freedom is something that can be experienced by the individual and the society that Jesus isn't merely, should never be spoken about, merely 
in, spiritual, in the spiritual dimension. It's an offense to the work that Jesus has come to do. To be freed by Jesus, to become a disciple of the way of Jesus, is to also see that transformed in your social location. The spaces that you socially occupy. And this is precisely the reason why Jesus says, no, go. Go back home and tell all that I've done for you. Experience it. Let them see it in your life. Freedom Church has a responsibility, a direction. And I say it this way, and oftentimes, even as I've said it to myself, it almost feels like it's antithetical to say that freedom has a a direction, a responsibility, because it feels then, in the way that we often talk about freedom, it feels then that we're putting limits to freedom, and that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound right. It sounds like I'm trying to put limits on freedom. You see, our concept of freedom doesn't often allow for limitations. If there are any limits or restraints, then it doesn't feel like freedom, does it? Galatians says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. The direction, the goal, the purpose of freedom is always love. So you were set free. Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You see, in our conversations about freedom, even as we consider the story of this man in anguish, the responsibility of the community to that anguish, and the freedom that Jesus offers, our, our conversations, our, the way that we view uh, freedom have to be given parameters. And that will perhaps at first feel like it's not right. But freedom isn't having endless possibilities. In fact, I think that's the opposite. To have many or endless possibility is to be a slave to choice. But what Jesus is reminding us here in the way that he engages with this man and this community is that he's saying that freedom always has direction. And if it doesn't go in this direction, it is no longer freedom. He says freedom is for the purpose of love. The love of one another, the dignity of others. You know, the Juneteenth flag, I I honestly, you know, admittedly, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know there was a Juneteenth flag. Um, But I saw it on my feed a few days ago uh, by a brother, a friend of mine who posted it. And he talks about this freedom. And I want to read real quick just the meaning of some of these symbols here and how I think it collides with our story today. He said, a man named Beth, uh, this is uh, my buddy J- uh, Jamar Tisby. He, I didn't put this up here, but uh, a man named Ben Haith, founder of the National Juneteenth Celebration Foundation, and some of his colleagues created the Juneteenth flag in 1997 and revised it 
uh, to the current one in 2000. The star represents Texas, the Lone Star State, uh, where the enslaved people first heard their emancipation on June 19, 1865 in Galveston, Texas. It also is <clears throat> emblem. The outline is a nova that heralds a new star in astronomy, and on this flag, new beginnings for black people. The curve is a new horizon. The red, white, and blue remind everyone that black people are Americans too and entitled to the full rights and responsibility thereof, most of all, freedom. But I particularly loved the curve and that it reminds us that we are always around the corner to a new horizon. And as Jesus deals with this man in this community, he reminds them, hey, listen, this is how you've been known, but you can be known again anew. And the question that we always, always have to be wrestling with is, are we making space for this kind of freedom in our lives, in our relationship, in our workspaces, in our church? Can anybody that walks through the through these doors, feel that they can be their full selves, that their full selves are welcomed, that they are not being ignored, but that space is made for them, that freedom can also be for them. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the way in which you remind us to rethink our responsibility to the freedom of others. God, thank you. Thank you that this is, you haven't built a society around merits, abilities, but one around grace, freedom, justice. And so God, as we consider our story today and how it lands on this day, and the way that we engage with our world, our world. God, I pray that you would remind us of the ways in which perhaps we have exploited the minority story, even in particular the African-American story. And in the ways that we have been negligent of the minority story, and in particular the African-American story. God, help us to be heralds of true freedom not freedom that simply gives lip service to the idea while in practice cultivating and fostering something else. Help us to be true heralds of true freedom, the one that your kingdom has established, the one that you've offered and offered to this community. Holy Spirit, do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.